Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce this, the last of the visiting lectures in the course Loving War, Nicholas Roger, Professor of Maritime History from Exeter University. <clears throat> but before I introduce him, I'd just like to say a word of thanks to the people who made this series possible, to Rick Herman, Director of the Mershon Center, without whose support, encouragement, and funding, uh, this would never have taken place. Uh, to Julie Radjuski, who arranged all the publicity and got the website, a wonderful website, together. To Vicky and the absent Anne Powers, who did the administrative arrangements. To Doug Carraway and his team from Audiovisual, who've put all these on cassette and also almost all of them on the web. Uh, uh, the two could be on the web, but we uh, are waiting for the appearance of books before they're um, uh, made available. So you get the preview. And anyone who wants to review the lecture, I have a cassette. You must just promise not to put it on the web. Now, thank you to all those people, and thank you to you for attending so regularly over the past eight weeks. Nicholas Roger, uh, as you will all know because you're here, is the foremost naval historian of Great Britain. He is the author of many books, uh, starting with The Wooden World, A History of the Georgian Navy, uh, a number of studies of individuals and aspects of the Royal Navy, but above all, uh, the author of something few of his managed, which is a multi-volume history. Uh, the first volume of his history of the Royal Navy was called The Safeguard of the Sea. The second one, The Command of the Ocean, came out last year in the UK and I think is being uh, released when, Nicholas, right now? It's out now. It's out now. Uh, 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 as you see, a, a, a substantial tome. But, of course, there's a lot to gloat about in naval history between 1649 and 1815, especially this year, 200 years from Trafalgar. So, there'll be a lot of toasting on the 21st of October. Now, Nicholas Roger is also a fellow of the British Academy, the highest honour that can come to a British academic in the humanities, but he's also a remarkable colleague. And I just, you have to excuse me, Nicholas, I'm going to betray a confidence. When I uh, wrote my book, The Spanish Armada, with Colin Martin, uh, it came out in 1988, <coughs> uh, it did well, uh, uh, it got nice reviews, uh, including uh, a lot of praise from Nicholas Roger. But he sent me a private note. We'd never met. Uh, we'd read each other's stuff, but we hadn't met. But I got a note in Urbana, Illinois, where I was then reading, in which Nicholas said, you know, um, you're quite right to say there are nothing quite like the Spanish records for the Royal Navy in 1588. But, you know, there is a series which, curiously enough, no one seems to have ever looked at except me, uh, which gives all the data for the British Navy for the end of Elizabeth's reign. And I think you might be interested. Here are the call numbers. I was on the next aeroplane out <laughs> to look at it, and I had to review and revise the whole book. But there's not many colleagues who would take the time to share a reference like that with someone they never knew. And it's characteristic of him. He's not only a fine scholar, he's a gentleman and a friend, and I'm very pleased to introduce him to you now to speak uh, finally on Loving War, uh, the Royal Navy. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I found my brief uh, to uh, talk about 18th century British naval officers uh, as a, a warrior class uh, a particularly interesting and stimulating one um, because I hadn't really thought of them that way before um, and having thought of them that way um, I'm still not at all sure that it's the right way to think about them um, 
but it's an interesting and stimulating way to think about them at any rate. Um, it is possible to find uh, people, I mean, 18th century British sea officers, um, talking of themselves as warriors. Um, there's at least one phrase in which Nelson says, uh, Nelson is a warrior and not a butcher. I may come back to that. Um, but as a matter of fact, I don't think that it was a phrase that came easily or naturally to them. Uh, the ordinary usage of the word warrior in 18th century English was applied to uh, primitive and archaic societies. The idea of a warrior implied somebody um, who fought with passion rather than reason. Uh, and the age of reason uh, would not have comfortably, I think, applied the word to themselves. Um, they certainly, of course, uh, thought of themselves or uh, and wished to be thought of as a, uh, some sort of a military elite. That goes without saying. But even at that level, um, sea officers had certain difficulties. Um, the whole status of the officer was, of course, bound up with the fact that officers were gentlemen. Um, it wasn't true that all gentlemen were officers. Very obviously, only a minority of them by the 18th century had any kind of uh, military uh, professional connections. Uh, nor was it true even that all officers were gentlemen, uh, but the connection was nevertheless a close and natural one. Everybody knew, nobody forgot, that uh, the gentleman had originally, by definition, been a military leader. And the sim symbols which marked the status of a gentleman, that is to say a sword and a coat of arms, were those of uh, the soldiers which they once had been. Furthermore, there was one essential integral manner in which every gentleman in every circumstances, however unwarlike they were, had to be prepared to fight and to face death. Uh, and that was because, as men of honour, they had to be prepared to fight in defence of their honour if it was challenged. They had to be prepared, that is to say, to accept and, if necessary, to offer challenge to a duel. And this applied to any gentleman, however unmilitary his habits, however remote he was from any kind of professional military uh, experience. If you failed to accept a challenge to your honour, if you failed to offer a challenge to somebody who had besmirched your honour, you fatally compromised your status as a gentleman. Uh, in this very basic sense, therefore, every gentleman had to be prepared to face death and to inflict it, uh, if necessary, in extremis. Though the dueling culture was actually... Um, it's always present, but the actual number of duels is very small um, in 18th century Britain. Um, they're very few, um, and um, few and newsworthy. But nevertheless, the underlying idea is always there. And it was accepted that a gentleman had to be somebody who defended his honour. And this, of course, presented fairly considerable uh, problems for all sorts of points of view. Um, uh, for a Christian country, uh, toleration of murder, 
uh, on grounds of injured self-esteem pose rather obvious moral problems. Uh, for a country ruled by law, the toleration of murder on any grounds whatever uh, presented considerable difficulties, um, but they were difficulties which contemporaries felt had to be surmounted, um, and especially they had to be surmounted for officers the army or navy who above all had to defend their honour. And sometimes authority found itself in a difficulty as a result. Um, in 1750, for example, uh, one captain in the Navy called out another who had insulted his honour. Uh, they fought, uh, and the injured party killed uh, the other man. Uh, consequently, he found himself in court and was condemned to death for murder, which, of course, well, he was unquestionably guilty of, and it was necessary for the First Order of the Admiralty to engineer a royal pardon in order to get him out of it. Um, this, this doctrine, this is, this is um, another member of the Board of Admiralty writing to the Duke of Bedford, the First Lord, this doctrine, uh, that is to say uh, the legal doctrine uh, that murder is a bad idea, this doctrine, however necessary it may be to preserve civil society, puts military people in a most unfortunate situation. They are ruined if they decline a challenge or even omit doing themselves justice. And we have an instance which I dare say Your Grace remem remembers of an officer struck off the list for declining a challenge upon just such an occasion. And yet they are liable to suffer death or at least confiscation of their effects if they submit to the rules of their profession and do the thing which, if neglected, would exclude them from the society of all men of honour and reputation. Uh, and so the Duke had to organise a royal pardon um, as was recommended. Um, and there were reasons for this. I mean, this is not just uh, a social convention which from our perspective may seem irrational, um, there are entirely rational and realistic reasons why officers above all needed to be encouraged to defend their honour um, because their honour was visibly useful, if not essential, to them. Uh, and this is because, of course, they were obliged by their profession to be prepared to risk their lives in action. Um, and the question has to be addressed, why do people risk their lives in action? Um, I address it only to pass on rapidly because it's a very big subject and much too big for me to talk about now. But you will all be aware that um, it's been... I think quite widely agreed by people who've examined this, people like John Keegan, that uh, what carries people into battle in the face of death uh, is very substantially uh, team spirit. It's people face death as a team supporting one another. But the captains of ships, this was difficult because they were, by definition, not part of a team. On the contrary, they were isolated figures. Um, and when their ships went into action, whereas their officers and men indeed did fight as a team, uh, and moreover had a lot to do in action, which kept them busy and gave them something to think about, uh, the captain substantially had not much to do except to stand on his quarterdeck, looking impassive, inspiring his men, and standing still to be shot at. Uh, and possibly as a consequence, the Royal Navy's record of courage in action, or more particularly the record of the captains of ships, uh, was far from unblemished. Um, in fact, uh, it was in many respects really rather poor, especially in the first half of the 18th century, 
where there were a whole string of deeply embarrassing incidents. Um, beginning in 1702 with the very famous case of Benbow's last fight, as it's usually called, in which that distinguished admiral went into action against a French squadron in the West Indies, only for half his captains to hold off and observe the action from a safe distance, uh, leaving their admiral to fight against heavy odds and to be mortally wounded. Um, as a result of that, two of those captains were condemned to death for cowardice uh, and shot on their own quarterdecks. Uh, but there was a whole string of similar uh, incidents, large and small. Um, the Battle of Toulon in 1744, uh, something similar happened to Benbow's action, but on a considerably larger scale. In the aftermath of that battle, a large number of courts martial were held on various captains, um, in all of which the members of the courts, who are of course captains themselves, showed uh, an admirable sense of professional solidarity. Uh, that is to say, they closed ranks and acquitted all the captains concerned, in some cases, in the face of flagrant evidence of cowardice. And this inspired so much public fury that uh, it led to a parliamentary inquiry in which the members of parliament plunged uh, into the murky waters of naval discipline um, with, uh, generally speaking, um, rather disastrous results. I mean, essentially, they were inspired. Uh, well, they, I think they had good intentions, but, of course, they knew nothing whatever about what they were doing, and they voted on political lines. The result was that the commander-in-chief, uh, who had, at the lowest estimate, at the very least, led boldly into action against the enemy, uh, was caught, dismissed the service for professional misconduct, uh, and his second-in-command, who had observed the whole thing from a distance of seven miles, uh, refusing all signals to enter the battle, uh, was acquitted and promoted. Um, this didn't do an awful lot to cement the um, culture, uh, professional culture of the Navy either. Um, and there were a great, well, uh, a quite considerable number of other incidents uh, of that sort. What made it worse was that um, the common seamen, men of course, of no birth and consequently un incapable of a sense of honour, never seemed to fail in courage when it came to battle. And in a distressingly large number of cases, uh, civilians proved to be braver in the face of action than the Navy. Uh, privateers uh, attacked enemy warships from which British warships had run away uh, or recaptured with great gallantry British warships which had been surrendered to the enemy by their own officers. Um, in a celebrated case in 1745, uh, it was the chaplain of a British warship who took command of the Marine Detachment uh, and was killed fighting gallantly in action, while the Marine officer who should have been commanded them skulked below decks. Um, this sort of thing um, did no good to the status of the officer and gentleman in the Navy, and naturally it did no good to the Navy's fighting efficiency. Things got better in the second half of the 18th century, uh, in my view, to a substantial extent, uh, as a result uh, of the execution of Admiral Bing, uh, which did a great deal to change uh, attitudes uh, in higher ranks of the Navy. But it didn't change them comprehensively, even so. Uh, after many uh, naval actions in the latter half of the 18th century, 
certainly uh, at least as late as the uh, 1st of June in 1794 and Camperdown in 1797, captains were court-martialed and convicted for cowardice. Um, the problem never went away. British admirals were keenly aware of it. Lord Howe, for example, um, always gave it as his opinion that he would never fight at night because at night he wouldn't be able to see what his captains were doing or not doing. Um, and uh, it was um, one of the reasons why Nelson was thought to have been peculiarly daring in going into action at the Nile um, in 1798 in the evening. Uh, it was not merely the inherent dangers of fighting at night, um, but the fact that it obviously and conspicuously marked the fact that he was prepared to trust all his captains to fight even if he couldn't see what they were doing. Uh, and quite a lot of his contemporaries, uh, I mean, Br British admirals, his contemporaries, uh, were not prepared to do that. So, the reason why I introduce all this is to suggest to you that these people had uh, a serious functional necessity for a sense of honour, because without honour, I'm not exactly clear what it was that would have carried them into battle uh, in the face of death. It's essentially their own sense of self-esteem as officers of what society expects of them and what they expected of themselves. And if that failed, um, what else was going to support them? So, they needed a sense of honour. But being gentlemen implied other things as well as a sense of honour. Honour was integral to the status of gentleman, but it wasn't the only thing that distinguished the gentleman. A gentleman was, of course, by definition, someone who assumed his position in society because of who he was, um, because of who he was born. Um, by definition, a, a gentleman uh, was a gentleman because of who he was, not what he'd done or what he'd achieved. Uh, but it carried, it was a position which carried moral obligations, uh, obligations to exercise his responsibility with benevolence and moderation. And especially in the latter part of the century, the rise uh, of, of the culture of sentiment, the age of the man of feeling, encouraged officers uh, to feel and even to display humanity and compassion, and not only towards their own men, but equally, or at least to a substantial extent, towards the enemy. It was not part of a gentleman officer's duty to take pleasure in the death of his enemies. On the contrary, they quite frequently expressed, um, and I, I, I'm sure genuinely, uh, pity and horror. This is the reaction, admittedly, of a young man to the very unusual sight of an enemy ship sunk in action in 1794. Oh, my father, when you consider five or six hundred souls destroyed in that shocking manner, it will make your very heart relent. Our own men even were a great many of them in tears and groaning, and they said, God bless them. Um, this is not, I think, the attitude of people uh, who went into action in a spirit of fanatical hatred towards their enemies. Even at this date, this is 1794, uh, they're fighting uh, the French revolutionaries of the age of the terror, uh, the men who had ordered and in a few cases actually carried out the order to massacre all prisoners of war. Um, this is not an age of civilised warfare. Even in this era, it was natural for a captain, in this case this is um, 
R.W. Miller, New Yorker, R.W. Miller, incidentally, um, at the Battle of the Nile, uh, ordering his men to stop cheering when they saw the French flagship on fire. It's not, I think, that he disapproved of imminent loss of the French flagship, quite the reverse. But in a moment like that, the sentiment of a fellow sailor seeing people facing the common calamity of fire overcame the thought, uh, the pleasure of seeing the enemy being defeated. Um, Nelson, in the same spirit, um, accepted a shipment of experimental incendiary shells for his flagship, but insisted that he wouldn't use them uh, unless against an enemy ship that had been driven ashore. In, in the circumstances you understand in which the ship's company will be able to escape ashore, but which it will be difficult to capture the ship. Uh, he wasn't ex- intending to use them in ordinary circumstances of fighting at sea. Uh, when you set the ship on fire, the men would probably be killed. Uh, and also, incidentally, of course, if you set the ship on fire, you wouldn't be able to capture it, which is what they were really trying to do, uh, and get the prize money. Um, it was a universal convention that you shouldn't fire on enemy small craft who were saving men from the water. Um, it actually was formerly a part of the standing orders of the Mediterranean fleet under Collingwood, but it was a normal convention everywhere. Uh, people who were saving life from the water were to be regarded as not engaging in warlike activities, even though, of course, the people they were saving uh, would be um, your enemies uh, whose <coughs> services were being secured to fight in the future. Uh, and you get some very inter- revealing incidents. Um, some of you may have heard of a man called Captain Robert Faulkner. Uh, Faulkner was a junior officer, a commander of a sloop, who made his reputation in the West Indies in 1794 by an extraordinarily reckless and daring attack on one of the French forts defending uh, Martinique, which led to the capture of that fort and directly to the British capture of Martinique. Uh, It made Faulkner a public hero, uh, and he was promoted captain on the spot. But that was for public consumption. But actually, amongst his brother officers, Faulkner had a very equivocal reputation, Um, He was regarded, uh, well, in the first place, Faulkner had killed a British seaman in a moment of passion. Uh, He got away with it at court-martial. The man had disobeyed an order, but it was universally regarded uh, as a sign that he was not entirely sane. Um, You know, seamen disobeyed orders all the time. To draw your sword and run him through was completely unacceptable. And the very way in which he had led the attack on the battery was um, one which aroused a good deal of disquiet. Um, It was described by one captain as being rather an action of ferocity than legitimate valour. You see underlying that a clear idea that the gentleman's legitimate valour is something restrained by reason uh, and an action of ferocity Uh, was something different. Um, That there was, uh, I think clearly they thought, some connection between uh, a man who drew his sword and ran one of his own sailors through in a moment of passion and a man who led this act of desperate gallantry against the fort, even though it was successful. And Faulkner himself seems to have had something of the same sense. Um, He had a profoundly bad conscience over killing the sailor uh, and seems never to have been easy again. And he was not very long afterwards killed in action uh, in circumstances which some people interpreted as suggesting 
that uh, he had, um, as it were, exposed himself deliberately. There's a profound underlying sense that it was the business of the gentleman to fight with intelligence and moderation. Um, I jump back a hundred years to, this is John Evelyn talking about the first Earl of Sandwich, British Admiral in the 1660s, and contrasting him uh, with some of the less thoughtful cavalier officers of that generation. My Lord Sandwich was prudent as well as valiant and always governed his affairs with success and little loss. He was for deliberation and reason, they for action and slaughter without either. And for this whispered it as if my Lord of Sandwich were not so gallant because he was not so rash and knew how fatal it were to lose a fleet. People outside the Navy, less immediately concerned with some of the questions of, as it were, specifically of fighting, were cons- talked about this sort of problem from another aspect, uh, particularly in connection with senior officers. Uh, they thought they met far too often senior naval officers um, who were essentially unthinking blockheads, um, if, if not um, vul- vulgar uh, persons apparently lacking the honour of a gentleman and consequently lacking the qualities of intelligence necessary in a senior commander. Uh, People who had neither courage to answer himself as a gentleman nor manners to behave himself like a man. Um, This is, of course, a hostile critic, um, but there were quite a lot of them. Um, They wanted uh, people, uh, a person of of worth and honour who has the education and breeding of a gentleman as well as a sailor, who has wisdom and prudence to contrive service for a squadron as well as to navigate and fight a single ship. Uh, I'll come back to some of the things that that's implying. Um, In a famous um, pamphlet written in 1747, Admiral Vernon wrote that it's certainly necessary that a sea officer should have some natural courage, but it's equally just that he should have a good sense, a good share of sense, be perfect master of his business and have some taste for honour, which last is usually the result of a happy education, moderate reading and good company, rarely found in men raised on the mere credit of being seamen. The general notion about sea officers is that they should have the courage of brutes without any regard for the fine qualities of men, which is an error themselves too often fall into. This levels the officer with the common seaman, gives us a stark wrong idea of the nature, design and end of the employment, and makes no distinction between the judgment, skill and address of a blake and a mere fighting blockhead without ten grains of common sense. Um, there is this something, I think, of the disdain uh, of uh, an officer who had by far the most advanced education of his day, who hadn't gone to sea until he was 17, uh, by which time he was said to have mastered Latin and Greek and made some progress in Hebrew, which certainly set him apart from most of the sea officers of his day, um, and perhaps even of our own. Um, but uh, still there are interesting ideas underlying that uh, about uh, what sort of courage an officer, or specifically a senior officer, ought to have. And people who comment about um, officers that they knew frequently are implicitly, I think, appealing to some such standard. Uh, This is a a private note from the surgeon of the Royal Oak in 1779, surveying his brother officers. 
Um, all the officers were agreeable, sensible people, but my favourite was Mr. Saul, the third lieutenant. With a sufficient stock of learning and knowledge in his profession, he was polite, easy and obliging. These were the qualities which marked the gentleman in every walk of life. Of course, the surgeon uh, wasn't professionally obliged to think first of all about Mr. Saul's fighting qualities. Um, almost certainly he would have taken it for granted that a man who displayed the proper gentlemanlike qualities in society would display them also in action. Um, but all thoughtful commentators agreed that it was highly desirable that an officer should display the moderation, civility and culture which were supposed to mark the gentleman everywhere. Um, in real life, of course, these qualities were not universal. Um, and this was not only because they were not universal among gentlemen anywhere, uh, but because there were particular problems about the status of the king's officers at sea as gentlemen. Uh, in principle, the situation was absolutely clear. When you received the King's Commission, rather the Admiralty's Commission, as a lieutenant, that is to say, uh, you became an officer overnight. You put on a sword, uh, and the moment you buckled on your sword, you were an officer and a gentleman, and your status as such could not thereafter be questioned, regardless of your own birth or parentage. Um, in reality, however, things were not quite that simple. The Royal Navy was unique among all the fighting services of Europe in imposing no test of birth on its officers. Whereas in every other Navy and Army, without any exception, an officer was by definition somebody who had proved his status as a gentleman before he had become an officer, in the Royal Navy it was the other way round. Uh, a great many of them would never have got away with passing themselves off as officers uh, if they had not, I mean as gentlemen, I'm sorry, if they had not uh, previously been made officers. Um, and what is more, this was a career begun young, uh, in which young men, even of unquestioned good family, lacked the opportunities to acquire that civility and polish which distinguished the gentleman. Uh, and this meant that the social status of British officers uh, tended to be a little shaky, in fact in many cases extremely shaky, uh, even those uh, whose birth was out beyond question. Um, an awful example was undoubtedly the best born young man in the entire Navy, George III's son, Prince William Henry, um, whose boorish incivility uh, was notorious. Uh, he brought uh, ashore from his naval service um, an exceptionally strong head um, and not much else. Uh, it's one of his biographers says that uh, um, apart from a foul mouth and a strong head, his vast repertoire of dirty stories made him the terror of every genteel drawing room. Um, <laughs> Prince William Henry was probably an extreme example, um, but there were a great many sea officers um, of... Um, uh, including those of good family, uh, whose manners aroused a good deal of disquiet uh, in the best circles, uh, and whose status as gentlemen was consequently uh, continually being undermined. And there was a problem also behind this. It wasn't just that they hadn't had the opportunity to acquire polish. Um, it was that... Um, the character of the naval profession was professional. 
that is to say, it was uh, a business which required an extremely high level of skill, which was learnt by prolonged training, uh, essentially by a process which resembled apprenticeship. But of course, gentlemen were gentlemen precisely because they were the people who did not have and did not need to acquire any kind of professional skill. Professional skill was for the middle classes who had to work to get to the top. Gentlemen were at the top already. Uh, they didn't need that kind of thing. Uh, on the contrary, to have to acquire that kind of thing distinctly implied that you weren't really a gentleman to begin with. And doubly so when your achievements uh, as a, a would-be officer were tested by an examination. To spend years of professional training and to be passed fit for a gentleman on the basis of professional examination uh, was a, a highly equivocal situation which undermined the officer's aspirations to gentility at every turn. And not only could they not escape the taint of professionalism, they didn't even really try. They actually reckoned themselves and judged themselves and compared themselves with one another uh, by their professional skills as seamen. And by doing so, they put themselves on the same level as merchant seamen, as the masters of their own flagship, um, as people who had no remote claims to be gentlemen. Um, and so their status of gentlemen was always a bit shaky. In fact, very shaky. And there was another thing which distinguished the sea officer from every other kind of officer, and which very much, I think, affected the question of how they fought. Uh, in armies, of course, the military profession was dangerous because uh, it involved fighting and fighting is dangerous. The naval profession was dangerous for other reasons altogether. Of course, they did fight occasionally, uh, but at sea, uh, as in fact on land, um, actions, serious actions, didn't occur all that often. You know, proverbially, war is 95% boredom and 5% terror. Um, in terms of facing the enemy, that was true at sea as on land. The great majority of captains of battleships never fought in a battle. Frigate captains are always thought of as fighting heroic single-ship actions, but actually only about one frigate captain in 20 ever fought a single-ship action. Even uh, in periods of prolonged warfare, it was possible to pass um, a blameless and successful naval career and hardly ever hear a gun fired in action. But these people were constantly exposed to danger, severe danger, inescapable danger for long periods at a time because they were seamen at sea in wooden sailing ships uh, and very often because of the circumstances uh, of wartime operations uh, operating close inshore. They were exposed to continual danger and this danger they had to face with the help of their professional skill and of course also with courage. They needed courage as much to face the dangers of the sea as to face the dangers of the enemy and a great deal more often. Um, and this, it seems to me, fundamentally shaped the way they uh, conducted themselves in battle as well as in other circumstances. Um, they themselves were quite clear that in many respects battle was the least of the tests they faced. 
the battle after all, this is a captain writing after Trafalgar, as I warned my officers, is nothing compared to the fatigue, the anxiety, the distress of mind which succeeds, more particularly in cases of such horrible weather as we had to encounter on this occasion. Um, it's not fighting which is the severest part of our life. It's having to contend with the sudden changes of season, the war of the elements, the dangers of a lee shore and so forth, which produce no food for honour or glory beyond the internal satisfaction of doing a duty which we know to be most important, though passed by others unknown and unnoticed. Um, And Collingwood, um, Nelson's successor, of course, thought the same. How little do the people in general know of war and of the anxious midnight hours which we experience while they rest as happily in their nests as a full stomach will allow. Now, to meet the dangers of the seas required professional skill, experience, training and teamwork. A ship, a sailing ship at sea, is above all... Uh, a highly complex machine manned by an extremely skilled team. There is no space, no opportunity, and indeed uh, no desire uh, for the brilliant individualist. Uh, It's all a matter of highly skilled teamwork developed over many years of experience. Ships which spent longer and longer periods continuously at sea, which the British did, especially towards the end of the 18th century, achieved a higher and higher degree of professional efficiency. And this, as you might expect, stood them in good stead in terms of uh, minimising the dangers of the seas. Contemporaries were convinced that it also translated directly into fighting efficiency. And this is quite surprising, because it's not actually immediately obvious why this should have been so. You can see, of course, that ships which were superior in seamanship, squadrons or fleets which were better trained as seamen, were likely to have an advantage in terms of manoeuvre, and this might translate into tactical advantage. Um, But as a matter of fact... Uh, In the closing years of the 18th century, the British grew less and less in favour of the tactics of of manoeuvre, which had been the favourites of both British and French, but especially French admirals, for most of the 18th century. Um, They actually grew less enchanted of fighting in the manner which most favoured their own professional skills. And they came to place heavier and heavier reliance on short-range gunnery. But why should skill in seamanship have made them superior in short-range gunnery? We're not talking about target practice. We're talking, on the contrary, about firing at ranges at which there's no necessity to have any kind of skill at actually pointing the guns. Um, It's not that they did an enormous amount of gunnery drill, They did a fair amount, but it was almost entirely dry, that is to say, without powder and shot, just running the guns in and out, which you could do just as well in harbour, and which, as a matter of fact, the blockaded French fleets in the Revolutionary and Napoleonic War era did a great deal of in harbour. So you might think that when it came to the point, um, people who had been cooped up in port, however out of practice they might be in seamanlike skills, 
would have been just as good at close-range gunnery as the British, at least had the opportunity to be. And yet, they themselves were convinced that it was not so. And as a matter of observed fact, in the battles of that period, it clearly was not so. At Trafalgar, to take the very obvious example, 27 British ships inflicted a crushing defeat on 33 French and Spanish ships. Nearly half the British ships did not come into effective action. Uh, the battle was fought at the point at which it was gained, effectively at odds of about two and a half to one. Um, in spite of which, uh, the British gained a crushing defeat in which they captured or sank 19 enemy ships for no loss and inflicted losses of killed and wounded approximately ten times what they suffered themselves. It isn't instantly obvious how a superiority in seamanship achieved that. And yet, visibly, something did achieve it, um, and we have to ask ourselves what it was. I think the explanation requires an understanding of gunnery tactics. You must, first of all, understand that smoothbore muzzle-loading cannon um, were rapidly... Their, both their accuracy and their effectiveness fell off very rapidly at ranges over about 200 yards. Furthermore, these guns weighed somewhere between one and two tons each, and to run them out uh, by manpower uh, was a considerable effort. If you proposed to uh, maintain a high rate of fire, you could only do it for a relatively short time before your guns crews would become exhausted. There was no question of being able to sustain high rates of fire for any length of time. I stress this because there's a huge amount of nonsense to be found in a great many books which quote absurdly high rates of fire which were impossible to obtain for any period uh, and imagine that they could have been sustained uh, for hours at a time. They couldn't. Um, the best rates of fire obtainable in practical circumstances uh, were probably of the order of about one broadside every two minutes and that might be sustained for half an hour at the most, probably. Um, so, a lot of things followed from that. Uh, if your guns were only effective at very close range, if you couldn't keep up a high rate of fire for very long, but if you wanted to close to a very close range and deliver an overwhelming volume of fire, it followed that you were not going to fire at all as you approach the enemy. Now, there was a long-standing tradition all the way through the 18th century, beloved of all French admirals and not a few British ones, um, which held that superior signalling systems, superior seamanship, superior ship handling, above all the superior genius of the admiral, was capable of delivering victory. But it almost never did. Uh, the rival tactical tradition, gathering force in the 1790s, which came to dominate British tactical thinking, though it was never completely dominant, there were still admirals who didn't embrace it, was that the British ships would have to close the enemy to the closest possible range before they opened fire. Now, think about the practicalities of that. We're talking about ships, in most cases, going into action under fighting sail, 
topsails, basically. Um, in ordinary conditions, you might expect uh, them to have a sea speed of about four knots. Um, how closely they, how fast they could approach the enemy would obviously depend on what the enemy was doing. Um, but even in the extreme case of uh, the Nile and Trafalgar, when the British approached a supine enemy at right angles and under full sail, the time taken between reaching long gunshot range, which is about a thousand yards, and reaching a fighting range, which was normally under 100 and sometimes as little as 5 or 10 yards, uh, is of the order of a quarter of an hour, during which time the enemy is firing at you and you are doing nothing. You are sitting still to be shot at, or standing still to be shot at in the case of the officers. That tactic requires an extremely high degree of discipline. It does not come naturally to people to stand still to be shot at. It's relatively easy to engage in a glorious charge, but standing still to be shot at is a different matter altogether. And this was what the tactic indispensably required. And this, I think, is the connection between seamanship and victory. Because, of course, successful seamanship depended, as I've just said, on an extremely high degree of teamwork and discipline. Facing the dangers of the seas made ships' companies uh, extremely powerfully uh, moulded teams, closely committed to one another. And that same discipline which they learnt as seamen was translatable into the discipline required to go into action uh, in silence, holding their fire. And thoughtful British officers were perfectly well aware that it wasn't inherent national superiority that gave them an advantage, but superior discipline. Um, this is Captain Richard Kempenfelt in 1780. Ridiculous to suppose courage dependent upon climate. The men who are best disciplined of whatever country they are will always fight the best. Um, and thoughtful British naval officers were perfectly well aware that discipline uh, was something which required immense efforts to construct and which uh, was easily lost. Um, Sir Alexander Ball told his secretary that in reality, though it wasn't publicised, the men on board our most glorious warships often run from their quarters, though it was made a point to hash it up, and that it was British officers and our discipline. Um, yet he believed their men were braver than steadier than any other nation except the Danes and Swedes. British seamen were most vulnerable in action when they were away from their ships, away from their routines, away from the teams in which they habitually fought. Uh, specifically in landing operations. Uh, they were often quite good in landing operations, particularly uh, something which could be carried, as it were, by an initial rush. But if the initial rush got checked by disciplined troops, uh, it was often disastrous. Um, this is um, Rafe Miller, whom I quoted before, who was one of the officers who led the failed British raid on Tenerife in 1797, uh, which part of the landing party got ashore. I'm not surprised that, considering everything, men unassisted by the high sense of honour and that rational courage which causes officers to prefer death to shame should, as a body, have behaved indifferently through the night 
uh, many individuals of it betrayed great intrepidity notwithstanding. We were without ammunition, food or water, our men as a body, heavy and without ardour, and not more than 350 strong. Uh, and in the event they had to surrender. But aboard their own ships, alongside their own messmates, with their own officers, British seamen were sustained by the confidence born of long practice. Sometimes they went into action with a band playing. Uh, ships' bands were very fashionable at the end of the 18th century. Sometimes, quite often, in fact, they cheered just at the moment of opening fire when the enemy was near enough to hear and be daunted by it. But usually, they went into action in dead silence. Uh, and that was specifically in order that everybody should be able to hear the captain's orders over the whole ship uh, without any possibility of confusion. Sometimes you hear them described as being in high spirits at the prospect of a battle. Um, the opening stages of the glorious 1st of June in 1794, um, one midshipman remembered, or wrote, in fact, this is a contemporary thing, I was surprised, it was surprising to see with what courage our men behaved. There were even some of them so eager that they jumped up in the rigging to huzzah, and Captain Duckworth hauled them down by the legs. Um, but more often, it seems, they seem to have faced action with a kind of sober determination. Uh, for my part, I'm determined to do as much as I can, wrote one landman, but all the same, I don't like it. Another, remembering the Battle of St. Vincent, wrote, We rejoiced in a general action, not that we loved fighting, but we all wished to be free to return to our own homes and follow our own pursuits. We knew there was no other way of obtaining this than defeating the enemy. The hotter the war, the sooner the peace, was a saying with us. And you get a similar sort of idea, I think, behind this letter. Um, this is written from the royal, by a seaman of the Royal Sovereign just after Trafalgar to his father. This comes to tell you, I can't do the accent, but he came, as you will tell from the wording of this, from the northern part of Hampshire. This comes to tell you that I'm alive and well, except three fingers, but that's not much. It might have been my head. I told Brother Tom I should like to see a gradely battle, and I have seen one, and we've peppered the combined, really. And for the matter of that, they fought us pretty tightish for French and Spanish. But to tell you the truth of it, when the game began, I wished myself at home with my plough... Uh, uh, at Wandsborough again. But as soon as I found myself snug and tight, I bade fear kiss my arse and set to in good earnest and thought no more about being killed than if I was at Murrell Green Fair and I was presently as busy and black as a collier. How my fingers got knocked overboard, I don't know, but off they are and I never missed them till I wanted them. <coughs> the worst of fear was over once close action was joined because then, of course, everybody was very busy, or everybody except the captain, who still had to stand still and be shot at and look impassive uh, and had nothing much to do very often uh, except encourage his men. Um, this is a midshipman, uh, the monarch at Copenhagen. Uh, technically, as a midshipman, he was in charge of uh, a group of guns. But he found that the guns crews of his division wanted no stimulus to keep them to their duty, nor any directions how to perform it. So Midshipman Millard looked around for something to do. 
I was conscious that employment was the surest mode to escape those unpleasant sensations which must arise in everyone's breast that has time for reflection in such a situation. I therefore pulled off my coat, helped to run out the gun, handed the powder, and literally worked as hard as a dray horse. I cannot find any contemporary, officers or men, who claimed to have enjoyed fighting for its own sake. All of them knew fear. Stomachy work, they referred to dangerous operations like cutting out expeditions. Somehow or other, notwithstanding that fighting is my trade, this is Captain Edward Codrington writing to his wife, I've always found a little anxiety to know whether the first shot or two coming for an enemy were to hit me or not. Now, battles were usually decided by casualties, since warships were seldom sunk in action. Um, The British tactic of closing to very close range and then delivering a very high volume of fire was designed to inflict the maximum possible casualties in the shortest possible time. Ideally, this tactic uh, would bring about a rapid surrender of the enemy by the collapse of morale, discipline and organisation. Against a tougher opponent, it might be necessary to continue the slaughter until the enemy had too few men left to fight. The result is that by the end of the century, casualty rates in action rise fast, and they rise completely disproportionately. That is to say, the defeated party, uh, including when the defeated party was the British, uh, suffers very much more heavily than the victor, Um, and it's also characteristic of these actions that the defeated party has a high ratio of killed to wounded. The British normally reckoned on about one killed for every three wounded. But in many of these actions, you find that the defeated ship or ships uh, had suffered ratios as high as one killed for every wounded. Um, I've got some figures which I skate over from uh, a series of battles. Um, In single ship actions, there were some extreme cases Um, Possibly the most extreme in 1801 when the frigate Phoebe took the French frigate Africaine of equal force. In two hours, the Phoebe lost one killed and 12 wounded. The Africaine lost 200 killed and 143 wounded. Uh, These are exceedingly high figures out of a ship's company of about 400 in each case. 450 maybe. This is partly a consequence of the new tactics. But the new tactics have a moral as well as a technical dimension. Um, As far as the British are concerned, this is war against the French revolutionaries who despised the formal tactics and scientific gunnery of the old regime and sought to rely on the revolutionary ardour of the boarding party just as the attack in column had swept the line away ashore, so the romantic heroism of the purple en masse would sweep away the effete tactics of a discredited regime at sea. Um, It didn't work. Political correctness proved no match for scientific gunnery, and in numerous actions, French boarding parties suffered horrific casualties as they massed in close range of British gunners. These French tactics, in fact, both reinforced and enforced the effectiveness of the new British approach. And it changed the character of naval fighting. For more than 100 years, naval battles had been predominantly between ships. That is to say, they had mostly been fought at ranges at which the target was a ship, 
and you couldn't easily see the man. Uh, but if you fight at 10 or 20 yards, you can see the enemy's guns crews through their own open gun ports. You're fighting against men whom you can see. Uh, and psychologically speaking, it's much more difficult to uh, avoid the realisation that you are engaged in killing people. It's impossible to avoid it at all, of course, if you come to the bloody and desperate hand-to-hand fighting of a boarding party. And the new ideological war against an enemy who explicitly renounced all civilised constraints, uh, who ordered the massacre of prisoners and so on, took on a ferocity which had been absent before. And the men at the guillotine and the boarding pike could not be fought with the gentlemanlike restraint which had been characteristic of most of the 18th century. And in retrospect, at least, many British officers thought that they themselves had been morally corrupted by the necessity of fighting the French revolutionaries in some respect uh, on their own terms. This was a period in our history when nothing seemed to satisfy us but the blood of all who were opposed to us. Like the ferocious beasts of the desert, we seemed to live for that only. It occupied even our sleeping thoughts. We were no longer Christians. We were scarcely men. So entirely were we changed by the desperate character of our revolution-bred antagonists. It's a fine rhetorical passage, um, written a long time afterwards, and perhaps exaggerated, but still very interesting. I have to say, however, that I do not know any instance of any British officer at the time expressing any sort of satisfaction at high enemy casualties. They fought, of course, to win. They adopted the tactic which gave them the best prospect of swift and decisive victory, but they took no pleasure in killing for its own sake. When they comment on the enemy's losses, as they frequently do, it is invariably in terms of regret and not infrequently of horror. The destruction among the enemy is dreadful. This is the kind of comment which they use. Um, And always they stress in their correspondence and in their private journals that, that is to say, not, not for public consumption, that they fought for victory, certainly, for peace, for fame, for fortune, for promotion, perhaps, uh, but not for enjoyment. It is for the love of glory that I would fight, Codrington told his wife, not from any partiality, from the act of fighting. It seems to me that this culture of cool reserve was very remote from any idea of loving war for its own sake. They loved victory, of course. They looked forward to the rewards which it promised. They wanted very much to win fame and prize money uh, and to enjoy them both at peace with their loved ones. They knew that close action was the best and swiftest way to victory and this rational calculation combined with their own self-respect as officers and gentlemen drove them to face death and to inflict it. But I know no evidence that they took any pleasure in fighting for its own sake or regarded killing as anything but a necessary evil. Passion was alien to their approach, not only because it was alien to their culture as Christian gentlemen, but because it was completely incompatible with fighting efficiency. The complex organisation of the sailing ship, the most advanced fighting system of its day, absolutely required officers and men to remain calm, rational and disciplined in the face of danger. What was needed above all was self-restraint, not self-expression. 
classical reserve rather than romantic zeal. If there was a warrior culture at sea anywhere in the age of Nelson, it was in the French Navy. That was why they lost. There was no place in modern war for the intemperate ardour of a warrior culture. Thank you. Okay, we have about ten minutes for questions, and I've been waiting to do this all quarter. Fernand uh, uh, Brodal, the greatest Western historian of the 20th century, is, is terrible, a, a terrifying chair, because he turned around and said, right, now we'll have questions, and Gil Martin will begin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a, an observation. You, you were commenting on the positive and not intuitive correlation between seamanship and effectiveness in battle, and I, I was reflecting back on my own past as a rescue helicopter pilot, and why this had never occurred to me before, I have no idea, but all of the successful helicopter drivers I knew, and our game involved sitting there in a hover and getting shot at. Every damn one of them was a superior pilot, and I cannot think of a single weak pilot who was an effective combat rescue pilot. As for your silence in going into action, one of the hallmarks, and you, you can listen to this on mission tapes, I'd be happy to play some of them for you, where you can hear the radio chatter among the rescue task force. The sure mark of success is an absolute minimum of chatter and an absolute lack of emotion in the voice. The only time I ever chewed out a subordinate in combat uh, over the radio was for showing emotion in his voice. Mm. Um, thank you. That, uh, that very much agrees with what I'm suggesting. If I had time, I could have put in a little excursus on the interesting character of Captain Sir Edward Berry, uh, a figure who will be well known to any of you who have ever read Lives of Nelson. He was for a time Nelson's flag captain. Um, he's a man who uh, fought in most of the major battles uh, of his generation. And in all the old histories, he always appears as a kind of orthodox British naval hero. Actually, you don't have to read very far between the lines to discover that Berry was a disaster area um, in all sorts of respects, but above all because he habitually lost his head in action. Um, and um, he's, uh, every action which Berry was involved in, uh, he fouled up uh, very badly. Uh, and in fact, although he was unquestionably gallant and he had had the good fortune to um, distinguish himself at least for gallantry uh, in action on repeated occasions, uh, his career was essentially a catalogue of blunders interspersed by longer and longer periods of unemployment um, and his disastrous performance at Trafalgar uh, put the seal on his career and he was never employed again. Um, and Berry's problem was, was quite clearly that he was a man who lost his head in moments of crisis. Yes, um, there is, but much less than is involved in what you might call the classical tactics. The classical 18th century tactics essentially involved two squadrons um, manoeuvring to try to gain an advantage. And they, they did this sometimes for days continuously. 
Uh, as indeed they did, for example, in 1794 at the glorious 1st of June, when the glorious 1st of June was the fourth consecutive day that the two fleets had been in contact. Um, and the reason for this is that, um, assuming you've got two fleets of approximately equal size, um, conventional wisdom, and in fact conventional wisdom was more or less right, was that it was very difficult to obtain a decisive advantage unless you could somehow achieve a concentration of most of your ships on part of the enemy force. Um, and the hope was that by continuous manoeuvring, superior skill in tactics and ship handling would keep your fleet together while the enemy fleet fell apart, which is quite likely because the actual business of, of ship handling under sail and um, fleet manoeuvres was extremely difficult. And uh, they, in fact, all manoeuvres habitually did cause the, the squadron formation to disintegrate. Um, so you engaged in a lot of complex manoeuvres and you hoped that at the end of all this you would have come out with... Uh, your fleet in good order and the enemy's fleet had fallen apart and probably also your fleet to windward and the enemy to leeward. Um, by comparison, at Trafalgar, for example, the British deliberately took up a position of tactical inferiority, uh, one which exposed their ships uh, to an extremely dangerous situation uh, purely because it was the quickest possible method of getting into action. Uh, it was extremely simple, they simply ran straight down towards the enemy uh, with all sails set straight before the wind um, in their cruising order without changing formation at all. Um, it was the simplest possible um, problem from the seamanship point of view which they set themselves, uh, but it, by doing so they deliberately took up a position which was tactically exceedingly dangerous. Now, seamanship was always necessary. You could do nothing at sea in a sailing ship without seamanship, but in this circumstance they were drawing the minimum possible advantage from seamanship and conceding the maximum possible advantage to an enemy who was known to be weaker in seamanship. I was wondering, if, uh, if the tactics were so effective, why did the British develop them and not the French? Was it just an immediate innovation or did it develop over a period of time? It developed over time. So why, why did the French not get um, Well, that's, yes, that's an interesting question. To some extent, it's, it's not so easy to answer because it's not so easy to explain why things didn't happen. The French, certainly in the Ancien Regime, did have an extremely powerful professional ethos um, which held that, well, it held two things. The first was it, it held uh, the superiority of the mission, the object, whatever it was, uh, was to carry out the mission. Fighting uh, might very well be unnecessary and undesirable. French admirals tended to sail under orders which implied um, that they might have to fight, but should not do so unless they were forced to. Uh, so there's a powerful idea that um, battle is a bit unnecessary. Some of them went so far as to say in so many words that um, battle is essentially um, a, a vulgar distraction uh, for people uh, who want to show off, um, but uh, the superior gentleman officer will not allow himself to be distracted from winning the war uh, by the cheap satisfaction uh, of defeating the enemy. Um, this didn't tend to promote a culture uh, of close action, um, and in any case, they believed very strongly 
that they were superior in the elaborate tactics of manoeuvre that I referred to. They thought the correct fighting range was about 600 yards. Um, They uh, expected to fight with a slow rate of fire sustained over a very long period, or rather, in fact, intermittently. That's what it amounted to in real life, um, firing intermittently over a long period. Um, All these things represent an entirely different professional culture. That changed with the French Revolutionary Navy, um, the Navy of 1793 and 4, la marine de Londres, the French say, Um, but they rejected gunnery altogether. Gunnery was for scientists, scientists were gentlemen, they were morally superior to that sort of thing. Besides, they'd also got rid of nearly all their officers and abolished the corps of seamen gunners, so they were going to win by boarding. They certainly believed in closing the enemy all right. They just didn't expect to do any firing in the process. Um, and that remained the official, the official principles of the French Navy well into the 1830s. Their official g- manuals all recommended a minimum reliance on heavy guns. Um, and even French captains who had their ship's companies in an extremely high state of discipline and could, had they chosen have adopted gunnery tactics, did not do so because they didn't want to. Um, Captain Lucard, the Redoutable, the ship which fought the victory at Trafalgar, um, ordered his men uh, on no account to indulge themselves in the petty satisfaction of firing broadsides at the enemy, um, but as good revolutionaries to close close range and rush on board in a hail of hand grenades. Um, that is to say they deliberately chose to renounce their most effective weapon and to expose their men to the maximum possible casualties talking about stereotypes you, you talked earlier in your lecture about the uh, you know, this, this question of uh, seamanship uh, being a gentleman being a professional and how in some ways these clashed I was wondering, give everyone across a case study, I was thinking specifically of Captain Cook, who, as I remember, came from fairly obscure origins, but was widely recognized as superior seaman, navigator, cartographer, explorer, professional. Uh, how was he seen inside the Royal Navy Officer Corps, and how did the rest of English gentleman class society see him before he died? I mean, after he's dead, he's a convenient martyr, but before. Give everyone across that? Um, yes, it's interesting. In the Navy, um, where people from his sort of background were not that uncommon, he seems to have been accepted, um, as it were, on his own credentials as a skilled professional, uh, as a distinguished navigator, and as one of the Navy's extremely few uh, expert hydrographers. 18th century Navy had no idea about hydrography. Um, It's easily the worst navy in Europe in in hydrography. And Cook was one of the very few British naval officers who was actually a first-class hydrographer. Um, People had high professional admiration for his skills and his achievements as an explorer. Um, He had, of course, a very special status in the outside world because he was a scientist. He was, as the French would have said, a philosopher. And this, uh, he was a fellow of the Royal Society. This put him in a special social category all of its own, which almost transcended all others. Um, What is notable is that foreigners made a huge amount of his birth 
whereas British naval officers never mentioned it, and people in Britain in general don't seem to have stressed it so much. It looked much more startling from the perspective, let us say, of France, where, in principle, you had to prove 16 quarterings of nobility to gain admission as an officer cadet, um, than it did in England, where um, captains whose fathers had been farm labourers, though rare, were not unknown. But also, I should say that attitudes were changing as the century went on, um, I think Cook's background might have attracted more notice at the end of the century than it did in the middle. I think the social distinctions were, were sharpening as the century went on. And yet you have an example in your book of an African, African. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, a mulatto, Jamaican mulatto. Um, that's right, and that's right at the end of the century too. Um, I think myself that though attitudes were changing, the, the really big changes don't actually take place till after 1815. Um, when, in any case, the requirement for officers is tiny and they can afford to get rid of all the undesirables. They still needed good officers in wartime. I'm terribly sorry. I'll take one more question and then I'm going to have to stop because I'm going to do something we've got other engagement. So, okay. Uh, I was wondering if this uh, new tactic you're talking about is what led to the introduction of carronades. And is, is that what uh, accounts for these enormous casualty differentials? Uh, the use of grape shot and deck-mounted guns? Um, the carronades are introduced uh, actually independently, but of course um, th this sort of tactic was ideally designed to exploit the carronade, which was useless uh, at a fighting range above about 200 yards and really only effective at under 100 yards. Um, certainly uh, with grape or canister, if they were firing at boarding parties, so the carronade is equally effective with, with round shot, and in fact it was often used as such. Um, but it's not the case that they decided we've got this new tactic, we must design a new gun for it, nor the reverse, uh, we've got this new gun, can we think of a tactic for it? Um, the story is much muddier than that, in fact. The, the whole story of the introduction of the carronade is very interesting and in certain respects rather murky. Um, there is some reason to think that Sir Charles Middleton, who played the leading part in the introduction of the carronade, was a shareholder in the Caron Company. Um, uh, but however it happened, um, it certainly help, helped to make that tactic very effective. Oh, I'd rather they did it because it used a lot less gunpowder. And they were cheaping out on the various materials that were needed. No, they weren't short of powder. It did use less, that's quite true. Um, but they, they weren't short of gunpowder. No, that wasn't the problem. I'm sorry, we, we have to stop. Um, my only regret, Nicholas, is that you, you seem to undervalue uh, the future King William IV, uh, <laughs> William, uh, Henry, uh, who took very seriously his duties as head of the Church of England, so that when in the Chapel Royal, uh, Chapter would say, let us pray, the king always replied, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, wonderful end to the series. Thank you so much. I'd like to just thank again Rick Herman and, and T. Marchand. Uh, and Doug and Team Lord Paul uh, uh, for seeing us through these eight weeks and to you, Nicholas, for bringing the series to an end with such a terrific finale. Thank you very much. Thank you.